This podcast is brought to you by Athene. As the world changes, so does perspective. Is the sun setting on a bull market or is dawn breaking on opportunity? As a leading provider of fixed annuities, Athene was built for times like these. Working together, the future couldn't be brighter. Athene, driven to do more. I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I talk with Judy Faulkner, founder and CEO of Epic Systems, which is America's leading medical record software provider. But first, what's ahead? Whatever the final outcome for the presidency, the Republicans will retain control of the Senate, and that's good news for the economy. Here's why. The Senate will block most, if not all, tax increases that the Democrats desired. That means no stock market killing rise in the capital gains tax, which would have devastated 401ks, IRAs, pension plans, and nonprofit endowment funds. Also, no crushing increases in rates for higher incomes, which would have damaged struggling small businesses, most of which are taxed at personal income tax rates. Avoiding a 33% increase in business taxes loosens up more money for investment to expand companies and to raise wages. Another positive result of the GOP keeping the Senate is that there will be no government takeover of health care. No wonder health care stocks have roared upwards. Other good things? There will be no gutting the Supreme Court by expanding the number of justices. Packing the high court would have severely undermined the Constitution. The judiciary is supposed to be the independent third branch of government. Undermining that independence by adding new politically obedient judges whenever there is a change of government would have been a travesty. Making the U.S. and the rule of law no different than corrupt third world countries. The desire of the far left to erode First Amendment protections of free speech and Second Amendment rights to bear arms will also be thwarted. Repeal of the law that allows states to ban forced unionizations will not happen. Freedom from crushing work rules that often accompany unionization will help our competitiveness. There'll also be no statehood for the District of Columbia, which would have been a gross violation of the Constitution. But make no mistake, if Joe Biden does ultimately win the White House, he and his appointees will enact harmful regulations, especially in the areas of energy and labor regulations. Our energy independence will be jeopardized and small enterprises will be particularly harmed by having to comply with swarms of smothering new rules instead of focusing on expanding their businesses. Nonetheless, the prospects for the American economy are brighter with the GOP keeping the Senate. And now my conversation with Judy Faulkner. My special guest today is Judy Faulkner. She's the founder and CEO of Epic Systems. If you think of medical records, electronic records, you think Epic. As the website says, they develop software to help people get well, stay well, and help future generations be healthier. Epic started with a different name 40 years ago in a basement with, Judy says, one and a half people, two part-timers, worth about $70,000. Today, the company has almost 10,000 employees, over $3 billion in revenue, has the records of 250 million patients, including mine, 
Over 500 healthcare organizations use their software. Judy uh, grew up in New Jersey, my home state. Her father was a pharmacist. Her mother worked with an organization very closely that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985, I believe. And Judy became interested in math in uh, grade school. Then you went on to be a major in math and computer science, which is a whole new thing. University of Wisconsin, uh, back in the day, they just, I think, put you in there. It was a new thing, so they just plopped you in as a graduate student. But briefly describe uh, the uh, little thing in seventh grade with the math teacher about uh, numbers that uh, could be divided by three that got you interested. Math, math was interesting. Well, every day when I went to school, there was a math question on the blackboard. I remember where I was sitting and where the blackboard was on my right-hand side. And the question I most remember was, why is it that numbers that are divisible by three, if you add up their digits, the digits also are divisible by three? And I remember pondering over that numerical analysis, basically. And that was one of the things that got me really focused on math. So as you say, math is truth and software is application of uh, the truths. That is correct. Math is truth. And then you have engineering and computer science, and those are what works. And it's good to have both. So I like the fact that I was undergraduate math and graduate school computer science because it mixed them both. And what uh, we try to do here at Epic is hire people from both areas, because you need both. You need that looking for root cause, and you need the let's just get it done. Right. And uh, when you uh, started Epic, you initially met with uh, resistance from uh, physicians. That seems to be the nature of the profession, very, very resistant to change, which you've been battling now for 40 years. <laughs> and uh, from the very beginning, you felt that there are certain ways to do things and you had to pursue it. You resisted having venture capitalists. Right. You resist having acquisitions. You resist uh, outside software. You're very heavy on R&D. Never wanted to go public. Walk us through your unique approach and why you uh, did this sort of do-it-yourself approach. Well, I think I was uh, lucky that I didn't go to graduate school and get an MBA. I didn't have a degree in finance or economics. Uh, I was a programmer. And so I had to look at everything uh, freshly with fresh eyes. And sometimes I say that a number of my decisions were made because I would fly on airplanes. And what I meant by that was that I would be sitting next to someone who would be telling me what his or her uh, company was that they worked for, and often they had been either acquired or they had gone public. And I would ask them, how was that? And almost always their answer was bad. And listening to that and hearing it over and over again, uh, it came to my mind that if most people find it bad, wouldn't we as well? And that was one of the reasons that we decided we shouldn't do that. I also think that being an R&D shop and having to be very creative all the time makes it much, much harder to be a publicly owned company and to have the bottom line be so important when you're trying to do research, which might take a long time before the bottom line makes any sense. They don't go quarter by quarter. Uh 
innovations. Right. And uh, your unique culture of the company, uh, whether it's a, a treehouse built by uh, <laughs> discarded materials, whether Harry Potter themed castle, whether it's a cafeteria looks like a train station. Walk us through what you had in mind when you try to do these fun things or using names for a project like Bugsy. What <laughs> motivated you on that? What gave you the courage to do that? It's one thing to fantasize, quite another to uh, make it a reality and know that a lot of people are going to think uh, this is goofy. Well, you're actually doing very serious work. When we bought our first building, it was an old school. And we were going to put a fireplace into one of the conference rooms because we had promised one of our customers from the South who told us that since our previous place that we had rented at the time had fireplaces, and that was very important to people from the South, that we couldn't move unless we would have fireplaces. So we made the promise that we would have fireplaces. And we put a fireplace into the conference room, and it ended up looking like a lodge. So we asked the interior designers to see if they could make it look more professional. Meanwhile, we brought in um, snowshoes and come, hung them on the wall and an axe and a big piece of wood and put that by the fireplace and turned it into a lodge. And our customers would say that was their favorite place because they meet there. So then we decided to create other similar places. We created a room that was called the lake, a room that was called the galaxy, full of stars. And then when we moved into our current place, where we have uh, over a thousand acres, we said that it's so that we could pop buildings up like mushrooms when we need another, because we had kept running out of space in all our earlier places. Uh, the interior designers want a direction on what to do with the buildings. And having experienced the fun of having different conference rooms be different themes, we decided to just make that the buildings rather than the conference room. And one building would be jungle, one building would be New York City, uh, one building would be garden, all different themes. So your version of uh, Disneyland, in, a, in fact. <laughs> That's what people say. But when you look at it, what you see is that 81% of our expenses go to staff, directly and indirectly. Only about 9% of our expenses go to buildings. If we can hire better, and we have to compete against very well-known high-tech companies, if we can hire better and we get a high percentage of the people who apply to us and that we want to hire who do accept our offers, and if our buildings allow us to be more productive because we have individual offices for our, most of our staff, then it doesn't take very long if you get even a 20% increase in productivity because you've hired much better and you have a better environment for them uh, to pay for everything. So when you look at it financially, it is a really good financial decision. Now, we have an advantage. In New York, you can't have a 1,000 acres and pull it, put up all those buildings. Uh, in rural Wisconsin, you can. And uh, before getting to the corporate culture, actually, it's part of it. You have themed picnics. When you do meetings, you uh, don't hesitate to 
come out as a superwoman or a Harley biker. Explain <laughs> again the, 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 those kind of themes and generating a unique uh, can-do culture, fun culture, but serious work culture. Well, uh, the users group meeting had been kind of normal users group meetings. The very first one was just a, a little coffee table and some people sitting around it. We had a users group meeting where one of our customers came in with a hat that was Indiana Jones, because that was our theme, but nobody dressed in costume. He came in with an Indiana Jones hat and a whip, and it was very cool. So the next year, we decided to put on a little bit of costume, and the audience response was huge. They clapped and clapped and cheered, and I remember going off stage and saying, oh, dear, now we're going to have to do this every year. And so every year we do have a theme. And one of the rules I've made is, after some experience, I will never have a costume with ears and a tail again. <laughs> so there are still some rules and requirements to it. Now, you're, uh, how, how would you describe your culture? And how, how do you preserve it? It's one thing to have a handful of uh, people, get to know them. You can uh, know what they can and cannot do. You indicated earlier people have certain strengths in areas where they're not so strong. When you get to uh, 10,000, it's a whole different uh, kettle of fish. How do you try to preserve that and uh, keep control of it, but uh, not become a bureaucracy where ideas die because they can't get beyond the individual? Yeah, um, it gets harder as you get larger. I think there's two different questions there. One, how do you continue to have innovation and creativity? And two, how do you preserve a culture? The culture we try to preserve, and right now it's very hard when people are working out of individual homes so much, but we do uh, staff meetings once a month and everybody is required to attend. You have to get written permission from your team lead, from the president of the company, and from me to not attend a staff meeting. And they're very important meetings where people are learning what everyone else is doing. We're meeting our new customers who will typically give us a video of themselves so we can introduce them to everyone. And that's one of very many things that we do for culture. We have team leader meetings uh, every couple months to discuss how do you manage your team in a way that works really well. Now, on the other side, on how what about productivity? I think an awful lot of it is hiring, right? I learned that long ago when I took a class in managing and I was listening to the instructor and I went up afterwards and asked him, what's the most important thing about managing? And he said, hire right, and then you don't have to worry about it nearly as much. And so we've put a huge uh, emphasis on how do we hire right so we get the right people. And does that involve the tests that you create to try to uh, not quantify, but uh, discover the attributes that uh, you need? Yes, we find the tests quite predictive. I wouldn't say they're predictive in everyone's environment, but in our environment, they work very well. And it's a lot of fun doing what we do. I think it's a lot of creativity in developing new software or new features within software that people can use. A lot of that comes from our staff going on site and sitting next to users and watching what they do and seeing what they need to do to make the system better and then going back and owning that 
a lot of the desire to make something better comes from our programmers getting out and being with the end users so that they understand exactly who they are developing the software for, and it's very meaningful to them. Now, you calmly say that, but you're known, and you try to make it a real point with a client, is you go in there and you try to go in there on various levels on a constant basis. And is it still true you've never lost a customer that you wanted to keep? And also during the COVID crisis, you invented a new position called BFF, <laughs> Best Friend Forever. So describe your the way you try to uh, really, really be part of the client. Yeah, I think that's really important. And we do have the BFFs. Some people didn't know what it meant, but we said anyone who has a teenage daughter knows what it means. It's a really good program. Whoever is the BFF for that customer often develops a very close relationship. And their job is to make sure that the health system is using everything possible that they can use to do the best job possible with our software. We have something we call gold stars, which divides up into different areas, physician productivity, nurse productivity, a revenue cycle, many different areas. The people who run those organizations are very interested in patient experience and will have what features they can turn on to do a better job in each of those areas. And the BFF tries to help them understand what those features will do. It doesn't cost anything more for them. It's just turn them on and encourage them to turn it on. And many, if not all of our customers, pay attention to that quite a bit and try to make sure that they are fully utilizing what they have bought. It's a really good program. I have seen CIOs put their arms around the BFF at a meeting and brag to other CIOs, this is our BFF. And I can't see them saying, this is our account manager and hugging the person in the same way. Just by having the name changes the whole concept of what it's about. Right. And, uh, before we get to the world we're living in now, describe uh, my chart, which you've uh, said is probably the eighth largest country <laughs> in the world, if you just go by the numbers. Yes. Describe what my chart is and uh, what, what it does for uh, patients. Well, my chart is the patient portal that's linked to the health system. And in fact, it's linked to all the health systems that you go to because you can pull them all together in something that we call Happy Together. And you use Happy Together to merge everything so you as the patient get one view. And at the simplest level, it allows you to communicate with your health system, send messages to your, uh, the people who give you care, allows you to renew your prescriptions, to look at your lab results. And often we get stories about people who can look at their lab results even before the physician comes back into the exam room to tell you that your kids don't have a strep. The kids already are in their jackets, ready to go, because the parent has looked it up on my chart and sees that the tests were negative. Uh, it does a whole lot more than that. For COVID patients, it has what we call care companion, so that the COVID patients who are not the most seriously ill can go home and be educated by and reminded by the my chart software. And then if something goes wrong with them, my chart then alerts 
the health system and says, this patient needs to be seen again. It has end-of-life care because we realize that that's a very difficult area for physicians and patients to communicate on and to keep it up to date. So we have a whole area there for end-of-life care. That's just a fraction of what it does. And it has uh, 165 million people now? I think that's about it. And yes, it would make a very large country if everybody lived together. <laughs> and we see it just continuing to grow and grow in terms of features that we're putting into it. And uh, discuss some of the challenges. Provider burnout. It's amazing. Some physicians love what you provide and others say, no, it's, it takes too much time. How do you... Uh, deal with that uh, provider burnout and uh, what technologies are coming along that are going to uh, make their lives easier in terms of uh, record keeping and the like? CLASS, uh, which surveys uh, health systems, has said that for the Epic users, there are two important things. The most important thing that has a really close alignment to provider happiness is good training. And that is critical. Initial training is critical, and ongoing training is critical. The studies show that those who felt they had poor training also were not happy users, and those who felt they had good training were, in general, happy users. The other thing that's so very important, the second thing class found, was what we call personalization or settings. You have a smartphone. You set it up to reflect what's important to you your favorites in terms of contacts and pictures that you keep and things like that. If you don't set the system up to match how you like to work, it won't work as well for you. So those are the two most important things. We try to listen to our customers all the time to find out how to keep making it better and better. And one of the challenges that we have, as I think any software developer has, is that the people most interested in telling us what, in addition, the system needs to do are the really good users of it. And they want to add more intricate features to it. So we have to keep remembering and focusing on the everyday user who just wants it simple. So we have to go back and forth between those two types of users. Now, I'm married to a physician who's very much on the keep it simple side. So that helps a lot, because then I could think when I see something, would Gordon understand that? And if the answer is no, then I feel like I can channel how he thinks. And uh, then I tell the folks, you have to make it simpler. On uh, doing the medical records and the time it takes, uh, one is talk about, is it the culture of America, why we seem to have many more notes than people overseas do? And uh, second, using voice, sort of a medical version of uh, Siri or Alexa, where you can just say it, boom, done, over with. Yes, uh, we are moving more and more towards voice. It's called ambient voice. And what it means is that the computer is listening to your interaction as a clinician with the patient and is able to figure out what's being said, what the diagnosis is, what the orders are and actually create the entire note. And we demoed that at our last live users group meeting. It's quite impressive. And uh, that, I think, is going to be the future. The estimate is that it's going to be about five years from now. 
overseas, their length of the note is about one quarter the length of the note in the U.S. And I think part of that is training that we have to change our medical schools to retrain people or to change their training methodology so that they train not for paper. Because recently I saw, here's everything you need to put in your note. Well, you don't need to put that in your note because it's already been collected when you did the order or when you set the diagnosis. You don't need to repeat it in your note. And the training needs to be different for people to be comfortable with that. Uh, the second thing, of course, is that they have to do certain rules for regulatory purposes. And there's a lot that has to be done for regulatory that makes our notes significantly larger than overseas. And outcomes doesn't mean more notes mean better outcomes. It's just more time doing notes. My feeling is that when you have notes that are very dense and very long, not only does it mean that the individual who put them in that way, when in fact he or she was duplicating what was already collected, that individual has to spend more time on it and less time with the patient. But it means everybody else who reads it has to spend more time on it. So getting the notes down to the minimum that they need to have in order to be really good is important. One of the shocking statistics is that even today, only about 10% of medical decisions are truly evidence-based, and the rest is based on experience, anecdote, but not having something there that says, aha, this particular patient would need this particular uh, regimen. We are collecting the de-identified, it's called limited data set, medical record information from all of our customers who will share it with us. And I tell them that in the end, they all will. And the reason I think they will is, as somebody said to us, when we get what we're doing with this data done, it will be the biggest improvement to healthcare since penicillin. And that's an exciting comment. So is, is this uh, Cosmos? Is this, and you have over 60 million records now done by agreement? That is correct. Uh, 60 million I last heard, but we were collecting about another million every week. So it's more than that. And it has multiple ideas, but the most exciting, because it's a huge and wonderful research repository. And uh, as you mentioned, I've heard that only 10% of the decisions made are based on evidence, because we don't have more than that. But most people want to make evidence-based decisions. So what Cosmos will do for the clinician is to let the clinician know what worked best for a patient that the clinician is seeing by looking at other patients like that patient and evaluating the different treatments that they got and coming up with the best. In the beginning, we may have the clinician invoke Cosmos. Then later on, Cosmos results will just be there. And eventually, when Cosmos results are well trusted, it will guide the physician to the decision that Cosmos has examined and said, is it medication A or medication B or operation C or operation D? What is it that's going to help the most? And Cosmos will then guide the clinician, always allowing the clinician, of course, to override it. I think that's very, very exciting about where that's going to go. 
So less flying in the dark and uh, more 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 clearness ahead. That's why I tell all of our customers that they will do it at some point because it's just going to be too valuable. But the only way you can get Cosmos to alert you as to what to do is if you share your data with it. So the two go together. And uh, this data is coming from uh, healthcare providers, Correct. Your, your, your existing clients who uh, realize siloing is not the way for better care. Yes, that's correct. And uh, talking about uh, COVID, you're not charging for some of the things you did during the crisis to help people. Describe that and then uh, also uh, drive through test some of the things you did short term to meet the crisis. Well, of course, the first thing we had to do was write code to help identify who had COVID, what to do with them, and to be put into Epicare so that it will help the clinicians and the health systems care for the patients. We did a lot of extending the software to alternative care facilities. We got a call from one of the states that said, we need your system in a thousand more beds right away in four days. Well, it's not usually four days that you can do something like that. It usually is like seven months. And so our first reaction was impossible. And then our second reaction was, let's figure out how to do it. So we did. And uh, a nice byproduct of that is that we have come up with many things now to help our new customers do a faster, less expensive, and equally good install. We have installed, we calculated 92,000 additional beds, alternative care facilities. And the latest one opens today. It's at the Wisconsin State Fairgrounds. And it starts off with 50 beds and it's expandable to 500. And they don't have any patients yet, but it opens today. Congratulations. Thank you. Quite an achievement. Uh, Drive-through testing. We did a lot of drive-through testing so that uh, patients could get COVID tests. Then another thing that we did was called uh, Pulse Central. Pulse Central took data from our customers in every state and created uh, information that public health can look at to see what is going on, what about PPE, the in a number of COVID patients that they have in their areas, what is working, what is not working. So that was called Pulse Central, and it's available to all 50 state public health county and state facilities, as well as to the federal government. We did a whole lot of telehealth. We installed 200 uh, health systems with telehealth, and we trained 5,000 people in how to use telehealth. And as you may know, people went from things like 30 a day of telehealth visits to 8,000 a day telehealth visits. Now we're seeing that drop. It's going to be one of the things for the future. Telehealth is going to stay, but not at the numbers it was at the height of COVID, which hopefully won't come back again at that height, but we don't know. Another thing we did was uh, create something called ehrn.org. That uh, That is uh, fascinating because uh, you've, in effect, started an online medical journal recognizing that uh, things were happening, information was there, waiting six months or 12 months to get a formal approval and a printed publication wasn't going to do much good during the COVID crisis. And one of the things that helped prompt it 
was getting information from certain clients that perhaps people were dying more than they should using ventilators, crucial information that you're getting out there. Describe the, the creation. This this is quite a quite an achievement. Uh, well, we had a few of our customers that I was talking to, CEOs in particular, who were just commenting that they were doing better turning the patients on their side or putting them prone and trying to avoid ventilators. So we decided to do a study on that, and that was one of the reasons we created EHRN.org, because we knew that it was important to get data like that out quickly. Uh, we also did another study on were there any particular medications people were taking, and it, the one that was very questionable at the time was hydroxychloroquine, to see if indeed that really did have an effect of protecting the patient. And those two studies we were doing, but we needed a place to send them. So we got about 80 people together. They divided up into all different areas of writing, of researching, of looking at the clinical effect, all sorts of things. And we just created EHRN.org and got it going. And uh, now what we're doing, I think it's really interesting. We're going to have two teams on every EHRN because it's not peer-reviewed. So. What we're doing instead is putting two separate teams on the same problem. Can't talk to each other. And then when they get their results, we'll compare the results. Because a lot of the results depend on what assumptions did you make in the very beginning. And I think it's going to be a fascinating write-up to see, here's what team one found. Here's what team two found. Here's where they're the same. Here's where they're different. Here's why. So that's coming up. Now, in uh, fighting COVID, obviously a price was paid because a lot of uh, procedures that normally would be done weren't done, uh, cancer screenings and the like. And uh, your new journal, in effect, is able to uh, get that kind of information in real time. That is correct. Uh, we did find, and we're, we were quite worried about it and still are, that not only did cancer screenings go down, but children's immunizations went down too. and They've caught up to where they have been, but they haven't filled the gap yet. And so for kids' immunizations, that's really important. You have to fill the gap. For cancer screenings, that's very important, too. It may be that people who really didn't need to come in are self-selecting, but that may not be as well. We don't know yet. And uh, describe epicshare.org. Oh, it's wow. not up yet, but... You're uh, on top of things. It's on the horizon. Uh, we're just creating Epicshare. One of the things our customer executives tell us all the time is that they want to stand on each other's shoulders. They want to know what others are doing so they can do it too. And so we call that imitate to innovate. And what we're saying is that it's good to have a chief innovation officer, but you really also need a chief imitation officer to watch what others are doing and share. We have so many wonderful stories from our customers. We will get maybe five to 10 a week of creative things they're doing that really need to be shared. So we're creating epicshare.org. I'm going to guess it's out in about a month. And it will be the ability to share that information so that others, doesn't matter whether Epic users or other users, can learn what are these folks doing that is really helping, for example, reduce uh, 
catheterization infection or helping with um, sleep apnea or whatever it is. What are they doing that can be shared? And it will come out quickly, just like EHRN.org is fast. These will be fast as well. So uh, this uh, ties into uh, information from uh, providers and payers. More information you think can lead to uh, better uh, decisions on what treatments you need, better decisions on claims instead of waiting months. How do, how do you see that playing out? A couple things there. Um, I think better decisions on claims are going to come because we are now having payers be our customers as well as health systems. And some of the things we want to do is get rapid and good decisions on claims because that can take months and involve such enormous overhead to do that. The other side of that is we want to have pre-authorizations uh, done more quickly so that if you have a lump and it needs a biopsy, you don't have to wait very long. That could be shared between the payer and the health system, and the approval for that could be very quick. Sort of the medical equivalent of an instant loan. Yes, and we're hoping that that will help a lot. Both the health systems and the payers think it will. One of the issues, of course, is privacy. I had uh, a provider show me Epic and uh, my name, and I was astounded uh, at all the information right there <laughs> when I visited, what, what they did, what they, wow. <laughs> then that leads, of course, to privacy concerns. It also uh, leads to uh, the government deciding who can and who can't. And uh, you once said uh, one of your biggest challenges is government. So how are you dealing with this uh, in a way in which uh, we have the benefits and not uh, the downsides of uh, hackability and that kind of thing, or people seeing it who shouldn't see it? Yes, that is a problem. It's not a problem with health systems because they exchange data for your care, and that's allowed under HIPAA. So if you go to a health system in New Jersey and then come, say, to uh, University of Wisconsin here, you will see the same information brought over right here so that they can knowledgeably treat you. Where I think there is a danger of information getting out is in interoperability and conflating interoperability that is provider interoperability with interoperability that is app compatibility. Those are two different things. But right now, they are under the same umbrella of calling it interoperability. And I would like everyone to change the terminology. I'd like provider uh, uh, interoperability, which is by healthcare organizations. Its purpose is for the direct care of patients. Most of those organizations are not for profit and they're HIPAA regulated. Then you have app compatibility. And those are often venture-backed organizations it's the creation of a product for commercialization, typically. The purpose of its use is not really known. Most are for profit, and it's not HIPAA regulated. So, patient data could be formed into a profile of you to be sold to others. It could be used to advertise to you, directed advertisements. The data could be sold to employers to banks, to landlords, and others, not just for advertising. The data could be mined for information about your family members. 
and there's just no limit. I think it's really important to allow both, but to have not the same terminology for both, because when the government makes rules for interoperability and it applies to both, that gets very confusing. They're two very different things. So I'm campaigning for change the terminology and be clear as to which one you mean. And uh, you're making progress that uh, people understand these are two different, uh, in effect, worlds you're dealing with? I think we need to change the terminology first. And you're one of the first people I've mentioned this to, so it's brand new. So everybody needs to go out and help do that. Excellent. Um, Talking about uh, the future, we have uh, the rise of urgent care facilities, Uh, the rise of high deductible insurance plans where people now are paying more out of pocket than they were before. Some are covered by uh, health savings accounts, but some it's just direct out of pocket. How do you see that changing the dynamics of the uh, whole healthcare industry now that the patient is more involved? uh, It's not just third-party payers, it's patient payer now more and more. Yeah. Well, I am worried about what is going to happen to the patients and how patients who don't have access to care get covered. And I think there's going to be more and more of a gap between the indigent patient and the patient who isn't indigent, because as we move more and more to things like using smartphones for telehealth, they're not available to people who can't afford a smartphone. So it it isn't really equal to all. I don't know the answer to this. We have uh, our software in about 15 countries now. And you see each country different. There's pluses and minuses. I think the U.S. has very good health care, but it's not for everyone. The U.S. health care is typically faster. You can get seen right away. That often isn't the case in other countries. So how do we get the best of everything? I I don't know that there's an answer to that. And uh, one of the things that has always concerned you, uh, uh, hospitals, some of them have been notorious for infection, sepsis. How 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 are you uh, battling that? Because a lot of that can just be avoided if proper procedures are taken. Yeah, the uh, data on sepsis is incredible. Um, Huge numbers of patients who die of COVID also have sepsis. It's the most common thing that happens in a hospital when there is a death of a patient. And so it's not necessarily the key cause, but it is there. If you put in computerization to alert you, you get about a six-hour notification advance on sepsis. So six hours before the human being would have figured it out, the computer has figured it out and can alert you. And that is life-saving. So if we have customers who don't have sepsis installed, and I don't care whether it's our algorithms or some other algorithms, I get pretty ticked off at them and say, you're killing patients. Don't do that. Put sepsis in. Sometimes they worry because it's not perfect, but don't let perfect get in the way of better. Put it in because it's better and then work on it uh, to get it perfect. Now, one of the things we've done is we give people a refund on their maintenance, which could be considerable if they do what we call honor roll, and that is they do things like sepsis. And and if they don't have sepsis in, they can't get honor roll. So we're trying to put money behind it to help people be incentivized to do it. 
Uh, still about two-thirds of our customers have sepsis in, about one-third don't, and everyone should. Hopefully uh, the one-third will be pretty quick on it. Looking uh, to the future, you've uh, set up your company, since you're not publicly held, but you are an employee held in, in, in essence. How does that work? And you've uh, also, another part of that question is you've also set up a foundation to ensure that uh, the company can maintain its independence. At first, how do you pay inside in terms of stock when you don't have publicly traded stock? And uh, how, how are you ensuring that at least the future where you're not going to lose the kind of independence to be able to respond to your needs rather than to a Wall Street analyst? From day one, I've always had the belief that every single employee should be able to be a shareholder and feel that Epic is something that they at least partly own. When we were, in, were small, if you had some shares, you felt that you were indeed an owner. Now that we're much larger, of course, you have a smaller percent of ownership. But every employee, no matter what role, can own shares in the company. And I think that's really important. And, and we get it evaluated every year to set the price. Uh, my own stock is divided into two parts. It's divided into the vote and into the value. And all of the value goes into a foundation called Roots and Wings to help others. And the vote is put into a trust. And the primary thing about the trust is that the people who voted are required to never vote to go public and to never vote to be acquired. So Epic will stay independent. And I think that helps us know what our future is. And so you have the trustees. They've signed on the dotted line on those pledges. Yeah, not only, well, not only are they appoint, appointed to this and have that obligation, but we also have a CEO three-person council whose job it is to sue anyone who doesn't <laughs> abide by that. And... Uh, Looking to the future, uh, how do you see your own company evolving? Do you see it uh, a fundamental change, or uh, do you have the basic parameters now? Do you think you're going to have to make uh, huge shifts in response to changing marketplace? What keeps you up at night in terms of uh, trying to anticipate what's going to be out there? Well, I'm not kept up at night by anticipating what's going to be out there. I'm kept up at night with all the different things we're doing going so many ways at once, because when you hire good people, they have great ideas and they go do them. Uh, I see us having maybe a virtual, I don't think it's going to be real, a virtual holding company where hosting is part of it and staff augmentation is part of it. And the electronic health record is part of it. And Public health surveillance and disease management is part of it. And all these different things that what we've really realized is we are not just an electronic health company. We're doing all those different things. We're a journal. We're educational for sharing, such as Epic Share. And so right now my head is full of how do we look at that and realize all the different things we have become. And there keeps being more and more that we're becoming. It's fun. I'm glad if you see it that way, then uh, you're going to stay young forever. Uh, so in closing, uh, let's hit on two things. One is people should go to ehrn.org and see this fantastic uh, journal online each day uh, with uh, up-to-date information, uh, and lay people can actually understand it. 
And the other is uh, understanding the difference between app accessibility and provider interoperability. Yes. And so uh, if we do those two things, a lot of uh, unnecessary confusion and regulation and unintended consequences can be avoided. And put in sepsis. And put in sepsis as well. Yes. Two thirds of the way there, one third do it. It's life saving. So, Judy, thank you very much. You are an inspiration, both from uh, what you've done since childhood, seeing uh, the mysteries of threes. (laughs) And uh, doing what you're doing today, responding to an extraordinary environment in a very uh, positive way. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes. Looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 